We're going to begin in verse 21, and when you have that, if you'll stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word. I'm going to read verses 21 through 24, and then we're going to skip ahead uh, to verse 35. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into the child, where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. This story is very unique in the fact that we. We have one story of Jesus, one um, event from his life, and it's interrupted by another one, and that is what Cody will be preaching for you next week. And then after the event is interrupted, we come back to this man whose name is Jairus, and he takes Jesus to his home. And there we see this very important miracle in Jesus' life. This man is very interesting to me because he comes to Jesus as someone who typically would not have come asking Jesus for anything. This man is a religious leader. He is a ruler, the Bible tells us in verse 22 in the synagogue. He's the very type of person that often would oppose what Jesus was doing and would oppose the work that Jesus was doing. He is the very type of religious leader that would often be in conflict with Jesus. And yet here in what is apparently a moment of desperation, he comes to Jesus seeking help because his daughter is sick. As a matter of fact, as we quickly find out his daughter has died. 
And so he comes to Jesus in, in desperation with this great need, and he is confident that Jesus can take care of it. He has, he has this confidence that Jesus can fix his problem, that Jesus can heal his daughter. Jesus has no more than got off the boat. He has crossed the sea, and he has begun to have a crowd gather around him, and And he's confronted by this incident with this man who needs his help. I think we see in this text a man in Jairus who is a lot like we are in the fact that that we have desperate needs. We have the desperate need to follow Jesus. And I think this man shows us a very good pattern in how we are also to come to Christ and to follow Christ. Because I think if we look throughout church, through, uh, churches, throughout uh, history, we're going to see that people, they come to Jesus in different ways, um, and they follow Jesus in different ways. We, we see people who come to Jesus when they are young, and they do not seem to have uh, that much of a past. They, they do not seem to be that tightly controlled by sin. And yet then we see other people who come to Christ, and they are mired by sin. They have led a very difficult life, and they, they come to Him in moments of desperation. I think there could be some confusion when we we see the different levels of response to Jesus, and yet I think this man gives us a very good pattern of understanding how we follow after our Savior. Because this man has the most extreme case. His daughter is dying. He has nothing, no ability. He has nothing he can do to save her on his own. As a matter of fact, if, if we were to have read all of this, this verse 25 through 34, we would see that, that he even has to wait. You know, he pleads earnestly with Jesus in verse 23 to come, come help me. I know that you can do something. And then he's forced into what had to be just a painful waiting as Jesus has this conversation with this woman. And yet he remains. He doesn't leave Jesus. He doesn't run off. He doesn't go somewhere else. He doesn't go looking for another solution. He waits with Jesus. And so as we walk through this text this morning, I want us to see how you and I are much like this man and how it would be very appropriate for us to respond like this man responds. It shows us this wonderful pattern of how you and I follow Jesus. Let's begin in verse 21. We, we see first the imperative here to come to Jesus humbly. Verses 21 through the first part of verse 23 show us that we should come to Jesus humbly, with humility. See, this man here is a ruler of the synagogue, verse 22 tells us. That would make him a very important person. He is not the normal average peasant that Jesus often would deal with, but he was someone of importance. He was someone who was important in the religious uh, place in the community, the synagogue where they would all gather together to worship. He was someone that once you went in, he would have been respected. 
And yet he comes to Jesus, and the first thing he does there in verse 22 is he falls at his feet. One of the rulers of the synagogue comes to this place where Jesus is with this crowd, and he falls at his feet as a sign of reverence. He's the same, or at least part of the same group that would malign and belittle Jesus, that thought Jesus inferior to them and unworthy to be doing and saying the things that he was. And yet here he comes and he puts himself in a place of humility before Jesus, bowing at his feet. There's no arrogance in his approach to Jesus. There's no arrogance in the way that he comes to Christ. It's amazing how many people in churches have an air of arrogance. Not just in their worship, but just in their average, everyday life. The notion in our society of humility is long since gone. I mean, we just we don't have that. It'll be interesting because we're about to go through something that I know all of you absolutely love. A presidential election cycle. Everyone excited? Everyone ready to DVR all those commercials that'll be on back to back to back to back? When do we ever have a leader? When's the last time we had a leader in our nation? A senator? A congressman? And when you looked at them, you saw that their main characteristic, the thing that most drew you to them, was their humility. No, we don't do that. As a matter of fact, our society now uh, relates humility with weakness. We would never elect someone who was humble. We want someone who tells us that they can fix everything and that they can do everything and they don't need anyone's help. That's what our country has become drawn to. What celebrity can you name that's marked by humility? What athlete would you say is your favorite and their best characteristic is how humble they are? There's some, we can find some here and there, and, but most, for the most part, we want flashy, we want proud, we want arrogant. And yet this man comes to Jesus and he is humble. People in the church should never be loved and appreciated for their pride or their boasting, but who the people we should lift up, are those who are humble. See, we would do well to understand the power and the majesty of the one that we worship. I don't know that this man has full knowledge of who Jesus is. I don't know that he has come to Jesus understanding him as the Messiah, the Son of God. I I would say that's probably not the case. But this man does have the realization that the one he is standing before is greater than he is. And so he bows before him, he bows at his feet. And see, you and I would do well to have this understanding of Christ. 
That He is greater than we are. That He is the one who has all power and authority. As a matter of fact, we would do well to understand that all that we have ultimately is His. And anything that we can do that brings glory and honor to Him, we do in His power and His authority. It's not some great feat that some of us are going to get on a plane this week and go to El Salvador. It's nothing that it should even be applauded or lauded. It's just something that, that we do out of the fact that Christ has called us to himself and he has given us this wonderful message and we have the opportunity because of technology and because of the generous gifts of people giving financially to go and do this. It's got nothing to do with us. I hate flying. I don't know if you understand this, but I have begun telling my wife, I have begun dreading that part of the trip because I hate flying. But we do it because we are, we are created by this awesome God who has given us everything. And it amazes me how many Christians don't see how blessed we are, but they, they become prideful and boastful about what we have instead of humbled that God would give us this. We should be humbled that God has given us a place to worship this morning. We should be humbled that we have the resources that we have been given by God. It should humble us. Because God has been so good to us. He has been so good to our church. He has been so good to the members of our church. He has shown us so much grace and mercy. And those things should humble us instead of cause us to be arrogant. See, we must come to Jesus humbly. And I'm not simply talking about the time we first come to Jesus, but I'm talking about every time thereafter that we come to Jesus. When we come and bring Him the petitions of our heart, when we come and we bring Him the desires that we have, we should come with humility. When we want Him to do something in our midst, we should come to Him with humility. Knowing that he is the great God of the universe who has made everything that is. And yet he's decided that he would work with us in Eichard. That he would work with us here in Burke County in North Carolina in the United States. That, that the God of the universe would come to us. We should be humble. And that's what Jairus is. Jairus is humble. But look what else he has. He has confidence. Verse 23, and he implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be, so that she may be made well and live. Do you see the word might in there? He says may there, not may be. But if you come, Jesus, and lay hands on her, she's going to be healed. If you come and, and come to my house and lay hands on my daughter, she is going to be healed. See, not only should we come to Jesus humbly, but we should also petition Jesus with confidence. 
Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He has confidence that what he is bringing to Jesus will happen. Confidence. See, we can be humble and at the same time confident. Because we have the assurance that Jesus is going to do the things that he has said. See, we get this same type of instruction in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This man, regardless of how wide or how narrow his knowledge of Jesus is, he has confidence that when he comes to Jesus, Jesus can heal his daughter. He believes that Jesus will heal his daughter. He has no doubt heard what Jesus has done before. He has heard about the miracles that Jesus has performed. And he has confidence that by going to Jesus, Jesus will come to his house and Jesus will heal his daughter. Remember, Jesus has just arrived back on the scene. Crowds have begun to gather. People have come to hear what Jesus is saying. They've come to hear Jesus' teaching. There are probably others who are there who want Jesus to perform a miracle. But this man has the confidence to go to Jesus and to be healed. He has the confidence to go to Jesus and have that healing power brought to his house. His heart is hurting, his family is hurting, and he knows Jesus can come and heal their circumstances. He's certain about what Jesus can do. And while I'm not sure where he gets this confidence, I don't know what in his history with Jesus or his understanding of Jesus allows him to have this confidence, he has it regardless And the good thing for you and I is we don't have to have questions about where this confidence comes from. See, we as believers have confidence because we know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This man may have not had that knowledge. He he may have not understood who Jesus was. He definitely didn't know yet what Jesus was going to do in his, his life and his ministry, his arrest, his trial. His crucifixion. He didn't know about these things yet. He didn't know that Jesus was going to go and die on a cross for his sin. He didn't know that on the third day Jesus was going to rise from the dead in a wonderful demonstration of God's power over death. He didn't know that, and yet he still has this confidence. How much more so should we have this confidence because we do know who Christ is. We do know that he is the glorious one and only Son of God. We do know about his life, his death, and his resurrection. We do know that he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. We know that. So how much more confidence should we have than this man? He had enough confidence to go to Jesus, one who his peers would not respect, one who his peers would not have wanted him to go to. He had enough confidence to go to this man who had been maligned by the religious leaders and ask him to heal his daughter. So how much more confidence should we have? How much confidence do you have? 
when we gather around like this and we pray for a group that's going on a mission trip that God's really going to watch after them? How much confidence do you have when you bow your head and pray for your family, for your children, for our nation? How much confidence do you have in that? I hope it's a lot. Because we have here this pattern of a man who comes to Jesus with confidence. You and I have much to be confident in. We have seen the power of Christ. We have seen the power in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. We have seen that power. Shouldn't we have confidence then in it? Shouldn't we be confident in what God has done and is doing? We should come to Jesus humbly. We should petition Jesus with confidence just like this man does. But then we should follow Jesus also without doubt. At the end of verse 23, we see, uh, or end of verse 24, we see that he, he begins to go with Jesus. Jesus agrees that he's going to go with him, and they begin to make their way. They're on their way to Jairus' house, but they're stopped. Because see, in verse 24, we see that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There's just this, this visual of this massive crowd that is gathered around Jesus. And Jesus is trying to make his way through the crowd. His, his focus is on going with Jairus to his house. He's not going to stop and teach the people. He's, he's going to go and he's going to listen to this man. He's going to go and he's going to uh, give this man the desires of his heart. He's going to go heal his daughter. But they get stopped. They get stopped because this woman, as they're walking through the crowd, comes and touches Jesus' garment. And Jesus stops and has a conversation with her about her healing. I've always wondered, as I have read this text and preached this text before, what, what is Jairus thinking? As he's having this conversation with this woman, this this woman's healed. You know, she reaches out and touches his garment and she's healed, but Jesus stops and he, he's like, who's touching me? And there's all these people. Obviously, everyone is trying to touch Jesus and get close to Jesus. And Jesus stops and, and here is Jairus and he's, he's, he's just standing there. He's having to wait. It had to be excruciating to wait as, as Jesus has stopped and talking to this woman and your daughter is at home and she is sick. This woman has been healed and your daughter is still dying. But Jairus waits. He doesn't run off and leave Jesus. He waits. And then comes verse 35. While he was still speaking, Jesus is still talking to this, this woman. There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. There's not a lot of sympathy in that statement. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? They're coming to Jairus and they're saying, listen, it was, it was a good effort. It was a good effort to come and get Jesus. It was a good effort to come and try to get him to come and heal, but she's dead. Don't bother him anymore. 
She's, she's dead. This is, this is beyond his healing. This is beyond his trickery. This is beyond whatever they believe him to be. Your daughter's dead. You need to come home and leave Jesus alone. But Jesus overhears this. He says to the ruler of the synagogue, he says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. See, we have to follow Jesus without doubt. And at this point, there had to be doubt rushing into this man's mind. He, he had confidence that Jesus could heal his daughter when she was sick. That's something that he had done before. That's something he had heard about Jesus doing. It's obviously why he came. But she's dead. Doubt, fear had to be rushing into his mind. See, there's no place for doubt as we follow God. But don't misunderstand me. We fight with doubt. We fight with fear. But this man's life shows us that we should follow Jesus without doubt. See, those who have seen what have ha- has happened, those who have been a part of what has been going on so far, they don't believe that Jesus can have any, um, any control over death. He can have any effect once death has taken place. As a matter of fact, he takes Peter, James, and John, and they continue on to Jairus' house. And when they arrive, there's a commotion, the Bible says. People are weeping and wailing loudly. This was common in Jesus' day for people to be doing this outside of the house and inside of the house. As a matter of fact, there were people in that day who were professional mourners, and they would show up to mourn at someone's house when someone died. And so there's all this weeping and wailing that's going on outside of the house to signal that someone has died there. And Jesus shows up and he sees all of this and then he makes his way into the house as they're weeping and wailing and he asks them a question. Or rather he makes a statement. I'm sorry, he asks a question. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? Now, that's... An obvious question, Jesus should know the answer to that, because this is what happens when someone dies. You gather around outside of the house, and you weep, and you wail, and you cry, and you shout. If you ever watch a video of the Middle East when someone dies, and they're having this public funeral where people are being carried through the streets, there's all of this wailing and crying, and it's, it's a sign of what has happened. But then Jesus says... The child, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 39, the child is not dead, but sleeping. This shows us that many of these people don't really care for the child. They don't really care for the family because what do they do? They laughed at him. How do you go from mourning, weeping, wailing, 
to laughing instantly. It's, it was all fake. It was all a show. It was all part of the tradition of what you did when someone died. And so when they hear this notion that she's not really dead, but she's asleep, they bust out laughing. Jesus is out of his mind. As a matter of fact, what he is saying at this point has become funny to them. Because they doubt, they supremely doubt that Jesus has any ability to do anything about this girl's death. Sure, it's nice that he can perform some of these tricks so that he can heal some people, so that he can do these other things. That's nice. But when it comes to death, there's nothing he can do about it. So they doubt. They doubt. They've doubted from the beginning. They've told him to not bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus. Now they're laughing at the notion that she is asleep instead of dead. They knew what dead was, and this girl was dead. You don't call in wailers and mourners for someone who's asleep. Follow Jesus without doubt. See, the work of the Lord is no place for doubters. Jesus removes everyone but his three disciples and the girl's parents. That's the only people he wants there. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look, when the man first comes and says that his daughter's sick, Jesus is bringing everyone with him. The crowd is coming, all of his disciples are coming, and then once he is told that she is dead, he leaves everybody behind except for Peter, James, and John. The circumstances change. Lots of people can believe that he can heal the sick. Lots of people don't struggle with that. They've witnessed it happening. But if he's going to do something with someone who is dead, he only brings his innermost disciples. He only brings the ones who have witnessed the important events. He only brings Peter, James, and John who are with him during the most important times of his ministry. Because the work of the Lord has... No place for doubt. No place for doubters. I think about what we witnessed on the news in the last couple of weeks about the 21 members of the Coptic Christian Church that were killed by the terrorists in Libya. Think about what it takes to be threatened with your life. And to walk on anyway. To be told that you're going to die. Unless you renounce your faith. And you walk on anyway. You continue on. You continue following Christ. You continue being obedient to Him. You refuse to deny Him. You refuse to renounce your faith. Imagine what that takes. It's the reason that the work of the Lord is no place for doubters. It's the reason that you and I, when we are filled with doubt, are ineffective for God because we simply are not willing to do the work when we have serious doubts. I think of the disciples as we read in the Gospel of John where they are all huddled together in the upper room after Jesus has been crucified and buried. And they had so many questions. 
Their future seemed so uncertain. They were hiding because they figured they were next. And it took Jesus appearing to calm their doubts and their fears. See, we always like to hang that one on Thomas because he's the one who said, I want to see Jesus. I want to see the scars. I want to witness him. But the other disciples had already seen Jesus when Thomas says that. And so they go from cowering in fear in the Gospel of John. They, they are scared and frightened. They are worried that they are going to die next. To You read the book of Acts and they stand with boldness and proclaim the Gospel of Christ. They stand with boldness and begin to plant churches throughout the known world. They stand with boldness and proclaim that they are followers of Jesus and they die proclaiming that message. What good were they in that upper room full of doubt and fear? What what good were they to Jesus? What good were these mourners who were outside wailing and crying and ridiculing Jesus? What good would the other disciples have been who were not ready to witness such an event in the life of Jesus' ministry? So everyone leaves. Everyone leaves except for the child's father and mother and those who are with him. Everyone else leaves because no one else was ready to witness what Jesus was doing. I want to encourage you until you deal with your doubts and you deal with your fears, you will never be equipped to do the work that Christ has for you. Because as you prepare to do it, as you get ready to do that, you will have to face those doubts and fears. And if you have not done so, they will overcome you. We must deal with our doubt and our fear. Because we should follow Jesus without doubt. We have the supreme confidence that the book of Hebrews talks about. We have the confidence that this man has as he stands before Jesus and says, I know that if you'll lay hands on her, she will be healed. If you'll come and do that, I know that it will fix the problem. We should have that same type of confidence. We cannot follow with doubt. And then finally... We should come to Jesus humbly. We should petition him with confidence. We should follow without doubt. And then we should go where Jesus takes us. Go where Jesus takes you. Look at the end of verse 40. He has taken the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. The father has not been back home yet. This is the first time he's walked back in. And now Jesus wants him to go into where his daughter is laying. 
And he knows before he walks in the door that this scene is not going to play out the way he had imagined it just a little while before. I don't know if you're like me, but I, I like to I play things through in my head. I like to imagine how things are going to happen. This is not always the best thing to do. Because when you always imagine how things are going to happen, you always play it through in your mind, you always have to allow for those times that it doesn't happen the way you're wanting it to. And so when your child is sick, just as this is happening, you always imagine what could happen. You imagine the results that you don't want. But I would also think that this man, he's reached Jesus. Jesus has agreed to come. He is excited. Jesus is going to walk in. He can see it in his head. Jesus is going to lay his hands on this girl, and she is going to get up, and she is going to be fine, and everything is going to be perfect. And he has already thought about the rest of her life because Jesus is going to come in and heal her. And now he's going to go through the door, and he knows that that's not going to happen. She's not going to be laying there sick, coughing, with a fever. And Jesus is going to lay his hands on her, and the fever is going to leave her, and she is going to be fine. Because he's going to walk through that door, and his daughter is laying there dead. But he follows Jesus. He goes where Jesus takes him. He, he could have said, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to see this. I don't want to witness that. I don't want to see the horrific thing that has happened to my daughter. I don't want to be a part of that. I already know what has happened. They've already told me what has happened. I don't want to see it. But he goes. He walks into the room. So now I'm sure the man expects when they walk in the room, Jesus is going to go and he's going to lay hands on her to heal her. But he doesn't do that. He takes her by the hand. He just holds her hand. And he says, Talithia kumi, which is Aramaic, meaning little girl, I say to you, arise. And she gets up. Through the power of the word of God, she gets up out of her bed and begins to walk around the room. Through the power of Jesus speaking two words in his native language. Two words. And she gets up out of the bed and begins to walk around the room. Some of the information that, Mark's, that Mark gives us in these last few verses is rather strange. It doesn't really add to the story, but... To me, it, it, it really personalizes what happens because she gets up and walks around. How does she do that? Well, he had said little girl, but he wants his audience to know she wasn't that little of a girl. She was old enough she could get up and walk. She was about 12 years old. And everyone, they, everyone in the room, Peter, James, John, the mother, the father, are immediately overcome with amazement. Amazement. 
I'm sure they wanted to go running, screaming out of the room. They wanted to go grab one of those mourners and give them a good shaking and say, See, she's okay. He said she would be okay. They're, 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 no doubt they were, there was hollering and shouting. I mean, how do, you, how do you know what to do in something like this? They're overcome with amazement. But Jesus tells them, don't say anything about this. He strictly charged them that no one should know this. No one should know what happened. He says, give her something to eat. I don't know why Jesus said that. I don't think there's any deep theological significance to give her something to eat. I'm sure someone has preached that one time. Maybe you've heard it. If they have, I apologize. There's nothing. Jesus just says, give her something to eat. Jesus diffuses the situation. He calms everyone down. Something that, that you would expect. He would want them to go shout and, and, and proclaim from the rooftop of their house to everyone in their neighborhood. He calms them down. He says, don't say anything about this. Give her something to eat. This man followed Jesus wherever he went. This man followed Jesus wherever he was taken. See, from the beginning, we see that this man is confident in Jesus' ability to heal. But he doesn't say anything about raising her from the dead. He goes to get Jesus expecting one thing, and he gets something that he could have never expected. He gets something from Jesus that he could never even have imagined. Think about how that walk, how long that walk would have been, leaving that crowd and knowing that your daughter was dead. Sometimes we make it like the crowd was right outside and this one. No, these people had to walk everywhere they went and they had to make that long walk back home. How many times could that, that man's steps have been filled with doubt and fear? Jesus can't do anything about this. She is dead. There's nothing that can happen. There's nothing he's going to be able to do. But he follows Jesus. See, everyone around him laughed at him. They ridiculed him. That man is standing there as everyone busts out laughing when Jesus says, she is not dead, she is just sleeping. He has to hear that. He has to hear that ridicule of this man who he has put his faith in to take care of his daughter. See, no one believed. No one believed that what could happen, happened. No, no one thought Jesus could raise someone from the dead. But he went where Jesus took him. You may say, well, that sounds like he didn't have much of a choice. Jesus took him to see his daughter. Yeah, but he went. I don't know what Jesus did. I don't know if Jesus put his arm around him. And we like to... To make Jesus very unpersonal, like he, he was always this you know, high and mighty guy who stayed away from everybody, but that's not the case at all. He was always around people, he was always loving on people. I, maybe he put his arm around this guy and walked him in, but Jesus takes him in and he does not resist. Jesus takes him in to this place that he doesn't want to go, this place where his daughter is dead, that he had no desire to be in. And Jesus takes him in there. And he gets to see this miracle that Jesus performs. He gets, to, he gets to receive his daughter back. 
He gets to witness Jesus overcome death. He followed. He followed when there seemed to be no reason to do so. He followed when there seemed to be no hope. He followed when everyone around him was gone and not there and not being helpful at all. He follows. We should follow Jesus wherever he takes us. You should follow Jesus wherever he takes you. Because this man did so, he was able to witness a miracle. Could he have stood outside and Jesus went into the room and spoke to the girl and she came back to life? Yes, no doubt. It would be my thought that once Jesus committed to go, he was going. Once Jesus committed to follow him to that house, he was going. But the man followed. See, you and I have that calling in our life that we should follow wherever it is that Jesus takes us. Wherever he leads, we should go. Whatever he has us to do, we should do with joy. Whatever plan he has for our life, we should go without resistance. A lot of things stood in the way of this man taking Jesus to his house. Going in the first place is an amazing feat considering all the things that were working against him. Waiting on Jesus as he made his way through the crowd. Waiting on him to have a conversation with someone else. Waiting on him to ever get there. Finding out the news that his daughter was dead. Going through the ridicule of the mourners and the weepers. He overcame all of that. He set all of that aside because his focus was taking Jesus to his daughter. And he did not want anything to stand in that way. He had to be encouraged by Jesus. He had to be taken by Jesus. But that was his singular focus, was to get Jesus to his daughter. And so he followed. So for us, this is what we must consider. How do we come to Jesus? How do we follow after Jesus? Do we come with humility and confidence? Do we come with doubt and fear? Do we go where he calls us to go? See, sometimes the places we go are hard. Sometimes he makes us, he takes us, he leads us to hard places. Sometimes they're hard because there's threats and there's violence and there's persecution. Sometimes they're hard because it's our family. It's our friends. It's our coworkers. It's the other students at our school. That's hard. They're people with hard hearts. Sometimes we minister to people in our community and they they don't appreciate it. They think it's owed them. It makes it hard. Sometimes we go and we go 
and we go and we go and we don't see the benefit. We don't see the harvest happen. We don't see people respond the way we think they should. We continue to press the case and press the case and follow Jesus and go where he takes us and we don't see the results and that makes it hard. Because we want to see something happen. We want to see God do something amazing in our midst. We want to see some fruit for our labor. We want to see some benefit to what we are doing. And that's when doubt and fear begin to creep in. See, this man's original mission was simply to have Jesus touch his daughter. As a matter of fact, he witnesses a woman touch Jesus' garment, and she's healed. He's reminded in this woman, in the verses we didn't cover this morning, he's reminded of the power of Jesus' healing. She had been trying to be healed for years and years and had had no results. And here in an instant she's healed. And that had to give him new confidence and new hope. And then it's all torn down. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher further? But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Let's let's go. Let's go to your house, Jairus. Let's go there. Friends, you and I should go boldly and confident. We should be bold and be confident in what Christ can do. We should come to him humbly, but knowing he hears us and he cares for us. But in doing that, we need to go wherever he leads us to go. We need to do whatever he leads us to do. We need to be bold in our faith and humble before Christ. We need to fight against our doubt and fear. Not leave them out there unchecked or write them off as something everybody deals with doubt, everyone deals with fear. We need to confront them with the power of the gospel of Christ. We need to go boldly. I'll close with this. I've been working on for a while, a, a paper that I'm presenting in, at a university in, in March. I guess it's March now, later this month. And kind of the foundation for my research is, is reading about people or reading writings from people who have explored Jesus and the history of how the world was when he lived. The things that, that affected Jesus, the things that... Um, Uh, Jesus saw and the things that he understood. And it's very fascinating to read about about this, about the the time period in which Jesus lived, because he lived in in a time that's very different from our own. But what's amazing to me is you read all of these people that do this research, and so many of them, so many of them, as they're doing all of this reading and studying and they're visiting the places that Jesus visited and they're, they're trying to better understand those places and Jesus' culture, so many of them know so much about all the things that were going on around Jesus. And almost all of them completely miss Jesus. They, they, they understand about the agriculture around him. They understand about the geopolitical situation and the socioeconomic situation that was going on in Jesus' time. And they miss Jesus. 
They know the Bible, some of them, far better than I ever will. And they miss Jesus. See, from the beginning of this story, from the beginning of this event in Jesus' life, until the end, Jesus is there with that man, encouraging him, leading him, taking him to where he needs to be. Jesus is accepting his humility. He is, he is rejoicing with him in his confidence. He is trying to soothe his doubts and his fears. He is leading him to go into this room where he's going to witness first something difficult and then something amazing. This man could have went to somebody else. There were other peoples in Jesus' day who who said they were faith healers and things like that. He could have went somewhere else and tried to find somebody else and try to have some other remedy. But the end of it would have only been death. But what he's able to witness is when he comes to Jesus and he follows Jesus, he gets to witness life. Friends, you and I have a great message of life that has come from our Creator He has loved us enough to send his son to die in our place so that we can have life. And the good news for us is that now he he tells us, he takes us, he asks us, he leads us to be a part of the journey for other people. The journey that points other people toward faith. The journey that points other people who need to have the healing touch of Christ in their life. We're able to lead them toward that, push them, and show them what he's doing. But it starts in our life with us being obedient. Us being humble before Christ. Us being confident when we ask him things. Us erasing our doubts and fears. Us fighting against them. And most importantly, us following Jesus wherever he leads. Is that what your life looks like? Is that the pattern for your life? Because that's what Christ wants for us. And if that's not the case for you, if that's, that's not really how your life works, you really don't see that taking place in your life, God has given us in his word this morning a great pattern for following after him. And so my hope for you is that you, you see that pattern and it, it's something that, that convicts your heart. Hey, I need to work on this. I need to, to fight on this. I need to look at this. We don't want to miss Jesus. We don't want to know all the stuff, know how church works, come to church, be a part of church or whatever, and miss Jesus. That he is leading and guiding us and giving us great hope, erasing our doubts and giving us confidence in him. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us hope and peace and grace in your Son, Christ. God, I know that there are those here who are filled with doubt and fear and uncertainty. And God, I just pray that you would speak to their hearts and help to calm those fears. God, to erase them, to God just... Give them confidence and boldness in you. We know that we can come to your throne with confidence. We know that we have mercy in our time of need. And God, we know that we have hope in you. And so God, I would pray for each person here that as they see how your word has laid out, God, what we should be doing, how we should be following you, how we can follow you, 
with confidence and boldness. God, I just pray that they would apply that to their heart and to their life. God, that it would do something in their heart. It would encourage them and lead them. God, I thank you for your word and how precious it is to us. God, I thank you that you love us and you care for us enough to speak to us. God, be with us and lead and guide our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we sing and begin to close out our service. I want to invite you during this time to ask our Heavenly Father to calm your doubt and fear. When, when approached by His Word, when, when His voice speaks to you and says, this is what I have you to do, this is where I have you to go, this is what I have for you in your life, that, that He would erase your doubt and fear over that and that He would lead you uh, with confidence. He would lead you to go and do whatever it is that He's called you to do. I just hope that that will be how you spend this time as we sing.